The title of the message this evening is simply Celebrating the Savior's Sinless Suffering. Celebrating the Savior's Sinless Suffering. We've already read the passage once, so I won't reread it. We'll go through it as we as we generally do. The big idea this evening is simply this. It's long, but simple at the same time. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless human life. He alone could pay the penalty required to appease the wrath of God and bring us back into a right relationship with our Creator. One more time, because Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless human life, he alone could pay the penalty required to appease the wrath of God and bring us back into a right relationship with our Creator. My goal this evening is not to teach you something that you've not heard before. Nothing I'm going to say is going to be anything new. It's not to necessarily bring out some nuance of this passage so that those who don't understand Greek can better understand it. Um, it's not my desire to merely treat this passage as a springboard to uh, my own musings, though we will jump around uh, to many passages of Scripture, so get your fingers ready, whether it's flipping through a physical Bible or scrolling quickly through on your phone. Um, if you want to follow along, I did not put them all up there, so you'll either have to listen to me read <laughs> or follow along if you, can, if you can keep up. My goal this evening is to take this time of remembrance that we have at communion and focus it on just one aspect of Christ that is so familiar to us that I fear we often forget the magnitude of its reality. We all would be very quick to mention that Jesus was perfect, that he never sinned when we have the opportunity to share Christ with others. We know this to be true, and yet I wonder how often we plunder the depths of this simple belief. We've all said it so many times. It rolls off the tongue with so much familiarity, and yet how much do we really think about it? While we will attempt to do that tonight, we will certainly not cover every possible passage that touches on this subject, though we will spend much time simply reading from Scripture. I hope that this simply serves as a catalyst for you to dig further into the Word of God and become more enthralled with what Christ has done for us. This passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2 um, actually starts really a few verses ahead of where we started. I'm just going to give you the context. Feel free to go back and read the context. But Peter here is giving us, or giving his readers, I should say, um, instruction. He's telling them to be, um, to be obedient, to be obedient to the ruling authorities in their lives. He starts off a little bit further up talking about the governmental authorities, right? So he says, be, um, be obedient to them, be submissive to them. And then right before this passage that we've read, he's talking specifically to servants, to slaves. And he says, some of you have masters who are not believers. And they're going to treat you unjustly. 
And he says, if you're, if you are uh, doing, if you're being punished, if you're being treated wrongly or, or treated badly, I should say, uh, because of the things that you've done, that you deserve it, then you deserve it. But rather, you should be living in such a way that any poor uh, effect, any anything that somebody does to you, is done so wrongly. And if that happens, basically Peter says, be glad. Be glad because you are doing what God desires you to do. And as he's talking about these uh, people who, much like the passage in James that we've been studying for the last seven months, six months, you know, much like that, he's talking to people who are suffering for being mistreated, even though they're just trying to live out godly lives. And as he talks to them and he encourages them to continue to live a godly life, to live the way that God desires them to live, he points to the example of Christ. And this is not necessarily a traditional passage that we would go to for maybe a a communion service. But as I was reading through many passages, this one just kind of stuck with me um, as our our main text this evening. So we're going to have four observations this evening uh, from this text. It's given to us in the midst of suffering calling for submission, and it points to Jesus Christ as our example of perfect submission under the most intense suffering. And it points to the most important time of that, and that is his suffering on the cross. The first observation from this passage this evening is the reality of Christ's sinlessness. The reality of Christ's sinlessness. Now again, we've already stated that we all know this, right? Um, All the kids have learned this probably from at home, in in services, in children's church. Um, We all know that Jesus was perfect, that Jesus was sinless. And we all believe that. That's one of the realities about him that you must understand and believe in order to be a true believer. So we we understand that, but I think it's important for us to just make sure that we anchor that belief in Scripture, that we understand what Scripture actually says. The first observation is the reality of Christ's sinlessness. When you look at this passage, he says there in verse 21, for to you, for to this, talking about suffering, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he says, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. That's pretty straightforward, right? Not a whole lot of uh, wiggle room in that statement. He committed no sin. The reality of Christ's sinlessness. And we all would agree to this. We just read uh, a few few minutes ago, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We'll probably read it a couple times because I think it's in here multiple times in my notes uh, for different observations. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who what? 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Made him who knew no sin. 1 John 3, verse 5 says, You know that he, speaking of Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, holy, innocent, unstained. Those are three very powerful words. Holy, innocent, unstained. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Earlier in this book, 1 Peter 1, verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Christ. And he gives an example here, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Without blemish or spot. The reality of the sinlessness of Christ. It's true. It's not just something that we made up. It's not just something that we had to be a reality in order for all this other stuff that we want to believe to be true. We didn't just start at the end and say, okay, we need somebody to take away the sins of the world, uh, but everybody sins, so how's that going to work? Well, we need somebody that's perfect. All right, well, Jesus will just be perfect. That's not how it works. Scripture declares specifically that Jesus was without sin. Back in December at Christmas time, uh, I preached a message talking about um, the virgin birth, right? And the importance of the virgin birth. How many of you remember? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your But the, the virgin birth is important because it allows us to have a Savior who is 100% God and 100% man. And that 100% man is important for him to be our propitiation. It's important for him to be our substitute. That as 100% man, he lived an absolute, perfect, sinless life. We don't understand that. We don't have any way to, to comprehend what that really looks like. Because we fail every single day. We fail probably on the drive over here to live an absolutely perfect life. But Jesus, the Bible tells us, was 100% perfect. The reality of Christ's sinlessness. He says it so plainly in verse 22. He, com he, commi he committed no sin. None. But not only do we have the reality of Christ's sinlessness, I want you to see the reach of Christ's sinlessness. Yes, we've got four R's, all right? The reach of Christ's sinlessness. How far did it go? How many of you remember the, uh, the rich young ruler? Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Here he is, he comes to Christ and he says, Rabbi, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say to him? Anybody remember? What? Give up everything. What did he say to him first? There's two things. 
Yes, you know the law. He says, you, you know the law. Keep, keep the law, basically, I'm paraphrasing, right? Keep the law, you know? And what did he say? He said, all those things I have kept from my youth. Did he really? <laughs> did he, did he re- was he really perfect? This rich young ruler coming to Christ and he claims to him, I've done all these things, I've kept everything, all of the law. You know, I think a lot of times when, when, if, when we think about the sinlessness of Christ, it's easy to, to maybe fall into the same trap as the rich young ruler. Jesus was sinless. He never broke the Ten Commandments, right? Never broke the Ten Commandments. Oh, he, he never broke all of the other laws, right? All the law that was in everything. The first, you know, five books of the Bible, all of that. He never broke one, one commandment. But I want to submit to you that it went even further than that. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Actually, let's look back at our passage because uh, Peter gives us an example of what we're talking about here. So he says in verse 22, he committed no sin. So there's the reality. But where's, what is the reach? Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. So he never lied. Right? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He never sought revenge for himself. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He never lashed back when he was injured. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He always submitted to the Father's Peter gives us not only the the reality that Christ had no sin, but he he explains it further. He says, look, he never lied. He never sought his own revenge. He never lashed out at somebody when they injured him. He was always submissive to what God had planned for him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Actually, the whole rest of the chapter, but we'll just read it. Uh, these few verses, Jesus is speaking, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I think that's an interesting statement. He says, don't think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but more importantly, to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it, to complete it, to obey it to its fullest. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was perfectly sinless, but the reach of that was even beyond the written law. 
He says, even if your your righteousness would have to exceed those who have spent and dedicated their lives to keeping every single jot of the law, you have to be more perfect than them. And then he goes through the rest of that chapter and he gives examples. He made the law even more strict than it already was. Not only to prove to us the sinfulness that we have, but I believe he did that to reinforce the depth of the sinlessness that he provided. Jesus was not just one who kept the written law. He was the one who kept it perfectly. What it meant. He gave multiple things that increased the law beyond its written Statutes. He talks about anger and says that if you have hateful speech in your in your coming out of your mouth, then that is just like murdering someone. If you speak in anger, it's just like murdering someone. Jesus never did that. If you lust in your heart after someone, that's equal to adultery. He also says that divorce is adultery. He says that your words should stand on their own merit, on the merit of your character, not on these outside olives. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He calls us to return kindness for evil done against us, not to seek our own justice. He calls us to love and pray for those who are our enemies. That is the depth. Not only that Jesus taught for sinlessness to be a reality, but that is the depth that he lived. Have you ever thought about that? Yes, Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. But probably even more than we really understand. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 he then calls us at the end of this passage to, to, to be better. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have to be as perfect as God. Jesus was. And he could be, because he was God. Nicholas Batsig puts it this way, In a life that spanned three decades, our Lord never entertained a thought, never uttered a word, never carried out an action that was defiled by impure motives. He always honored his heavenly father, always honored his earthly father and mother, never lusted, never uttered a word in sinful anger, never gossiped about or slandered his neighbor. Neighbor, He never stole, never lied, never coveted. In short, he submitted to every commandment of the law of God without wavering. He loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. The scriptures bear manifold witness to this truth, and it is one of the most profitable truths upon which we ought to meditate. And yet how often do we not give it a second thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Jesus was perfect. Let's get on to the good stuff. Let's get on to what he did for me. How often do we make the gospel about us? The reach of Christ's sinlessness much deeper than perhaps we often realize. Observation number three is the requirement of Christ's sinlessness. The requirement of Christ's sinlessness. We have a very short phrase that Peter gives us here, but there's a lot that is packed into this phrase as we continue reading here in verse 24. He says, he, speaking again of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not only is Jesus absolutely perfect, not only is Jesus deeply perfect, but we are sinners. Mm -hmm. We are sinners and we are the enemies of God. We are sinners and the enemies of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Peter here said that he bore our sins. Ours. Not his. He had none. He was perfect. But he bore our sins. All of us have sinned. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. None. Since Adam in the garden, no one has been perfect. Sinless. James 2.10, we've read this not that long ago. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One sin makes us a sinner. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're not just sinners, we're slaves to sin. Ephesians tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. Romans 5 verses 6, 6 through 10 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for whom? For the ungodly. The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died we were the ones with sin we still are often the ones with sin we still fail we still fall we're sinners why did Christ have to be sinless the requirement was there because we are we are sinners and because we're sinners we need a sinless savior and it's through his suffering that our sins can be redeemed. Mm -hmm. We're sinners and thus the enemies of God, but also our sins 
incurred God's wrath and judgment. Our sins incurred God's wrath and judgment. What does it say? He says, he bore our sins, bore our sins, took upon him the weight of our sins. Where? On the tree. We know that that means the cross. He paid a price for our sins. See, there is wrath and judgment from God on sinners. You know, that's not a very popular preaching uh, today, especially in progressive Christianity. There's a lot of progressive Christians who don't want to, don't like the idea of God being a wrathful God. It's very weird. It's a, it's a weird concept. They, they're okay with Jesus dying for us, but not if God's wrath is on him. It's, it's, it's very odd. If you ever hear anybody talk about how that's not true, I'm going to give you some verses to point to. God is angry at sin. There is wrath coming upon those who have sinned. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it will be at the end of time. There is ultimate wrath and judgment coming. Jesus even mentions this when he was talking to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 36, actually this is a little bit later. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? But the wrath of God remains on him. Interesting word, remains. That means it was already there. Right? It remains on, on him. So God's wrath is already to be poured out on those who have sinned. And it is only through what Jesus Christ has done for us that that wrath can be appeased. It's wrath and judgment. Here's a longer passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 says, Therefore you have no excuse. Verse chapter 1, he's just dealt with a whole load of sins. Right? Go back and read it. He says, but he's also talked about the fact that we are without excuse. Right? Because of creation and, and things like that. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will punish sin. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. I told you we're going to read a lot. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord, judges, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't like to think about this, right? You're like, okay, we get the point, move on. But that's why Jesus had to be sinless. Because the wrath of God is upon us. He also had to be sinless because only a sinless sacrifice on the cross could pay the penalty and grant righteousness. That verse that we're going to read multiple times. First, Second Corinthians 5.21. We all have it memorized, right? Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. Our sin. Our filth for his righteousness. His perfection. That great exchange that we, quite frankly, don't understand. We accept it because Scripture teaches it. Romans 5, 9 through 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, I think this is interesting, shall we be saved by his an interesting phrase. Shall we be saved by his life? 1 Peter 1, 18-19, we already read verse 19 before, but knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews 2, 14-18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Propitiation, if you've not heard it before, simply means appeasing the wrath of God. It's literally what it means. Appeasing the wrath of God. He had to be sinless in order to give us his righteousness and to take our sin. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been made has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Galatians 3, 10 through 14, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. One more, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation. Think about that. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And because of that, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The perfect, sinless Son of God had to be sinless so that He could take our sin. So that He could bear the weight of our sins, so that He could hang on a cross and bear the wrath and the punishment of God. To the point 
that while hanging on the cross, he literally cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just sang the song and it says these beautiful words. God is strange from God. I don't know how God can turn his back on himself. I don't know. But Jesus on the cross, under the weight of the penalty of judgment, felt all of it. He felt every bit of God's wrath that we deserved. Observation number four, what are the ramifications of Christ's sinlessness? The ramifications of Christ's sinlessness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His sacrifice gives us freedom from sin. Not just freedom from sin, but also the ability through the Holy Spirit to now live a righteous life. Do we fail? Yes. Will we ever be perfect in this life? No. But his sinlessness allowed him to not only exchange that righteousness with us, but it allowed him to break, break the power of sin and death and hell on our life. It enabled us through his righteousness to live in a pleasing manner towards God. Romans 6, 1 through 14 says again, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, excuse me, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died in Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What is this healing? It's not physical healing. This is not a guarantee that because Jesus died on the cross, we won't suffer physical harm. It's not, it's not what it's talking about. Some that claim that. By his stripes, by his wounds, you are healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53. A very familiar passage, especially around Easter and Christmas. 
By his wounds you are healed. We are healed. We are made whole. We are set free from the penalty and the power of sin because of his grace. Verses 12 through 14 of Romans 6, we didn't read yet. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. His wounds have healed us and given us grace. We are no longer under the power and the penalty of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-57 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We've been set free from sin. We've been healed from its effect and power over us. But the third ramification of Christ's sinlessness is that we've been brought back in the right relationship with God. We've come back to the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. We now have peace with God because of Christ. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Very fitting for the people that Peter's writing to. We have an example of Christ who suffered in a way we will never understand as the perfect, sinless Son of God, taking upon him the sins of the entire world and bearing the weight and the wrath and the judgment of God so that we could be brought back in a right relationship with our Creator. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We now have the awesome responsibility to make the same call. As those who accepted Christ as our Savior, we then have been given this ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of sharing the gospel so that others can understand that reconciliation with their Creator, so that others can go from sinful enemies to righteous sons because of Christ, because Jesus was perfect. Peter reminded them, reminded them at the beginning that Christ is our example. No matter what we go through in life, we must remember that Christ has suffered many times greater than anything we will ever suffer on this earth. And he did that to redeem us. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless human life. He alone could pay the penalty required to appease the wrath of God and bring us back into a right relationship with our Creator. Are you thankful for that this evening? I know we read a lot of scripture in that can if you're not necessarily reading it and following along, it can be a little much. But honestly, I, I didn't want to just stand up here and talk. Because Scripture has enough to say. And I hope that as you guys have listened to these passages, I hope your heart was stirred. I hope your your mind was was reminded of what Christ has done for you. Yes, we take this communion time very seriously. We take this communion time uh, every month to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And yes, we, we think of Christ on the cross. We think of the blood that was spilt. We think of his body being broken. But none of that would have any effect if he had not lived that perfect, sinless life. Are you thankful for that this evening? Father, we thank you that Jesus was not just perfect in this glib fashion that we may often think of it, Lord, but he was perfect in ways that we cannot comprehend. Father, we fail and we fall so often we have no idea what it would be like to encounter someone who has never sinned. We have no idea what it would be like to be in the presence of someone who never said a wrong thing, never had a wrong thought. And yet Jesus did that. And it's because of his sinlessness that he can take on our sin. That he can be that perfect sacrifice. That he can be our perfect high priest. And so many other things, Lord, that he is for us because he was perfect. 
he gives us that perfect righteousness. And when you look at us, Lord, you do not see our failures and our faults, as we like to call them, Lord. You do not see our sin. You do not see our unrighteousness. You do not see our acts of wrongdoing. But you see his robes, his perfect righteousness, his life lived with no failure. You see him instead of what we have done. And we thank you for that. And we know that there's nothing more that we could ever do to repay what you have done for us. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of penance. There is no uh, amount of giving that we could ever do to pay off that debt. But we thank you that you loved us enough to send Christ to pay it for us. And we thank you that because of him there is no condemnation that we can stand before you justified. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by your mercy. Thank you, Father. As we come to this time of remembrance, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be free from sin. I pray that we would truly remember Christ that we remember ourselves, that we remember what he's done for us, not just theologically, but we would remember what he has done for us individually. May you be glorified in this time of remembrance. In Christ's name we pray.